Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening had an enjoyable and relaxing Passover. In Israel, it was anything but, with tensions and clashes at Jerusalem's holiest Muslim site, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, otherwise known to Jews as the Temple Mount. There was also renewed rocket fire from Gaza, and the country is still on heightened alert after a recent wave of terror attacks. That's the bad news. The good news is that things seem to have calmed down in recent days, and also good news. On this episode, we have back with us Israel Policy Forum's very own policy director, Michael Koplow, and research director, Shira Efron. Michael and Shira helped us catch up on the events of the past month, including a surprise political shock to the bennett Lapid government. And we also looked ahead to what may be coming in the next month. The holidays are over. Let's get into it. Hi, Shira. Hi, Michael. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Neri. Hi, Neri. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. So we're recording this right after Passover ended. I want to hear, first of all, how was everybody's Passover holiday? Uh, I know we were all in various different locales. Uh, Shira, what did you do for Passover? So um, I did the reverse of fleeing Egypt. Uh, My family and I went back to Sinai, um, which is Egypt. As Egyptians would tell me, I went back to Egypt. I didn't go to Sinai. Um, uh, like many, many, many dozens of thousands of Israelis, I don't know the exact uh, numbers, but the, the, the projections were for hundreds of thousands of Israelis to cross the border during the holiday in that direction. Uh, we went to an area called Beer Square. It's not far. It's uh, about half an hour from the border, via taxi. Um, a very rustic, sort of the old old school Sinai experience, um, uh, if you've ever tried it, uh, you know, sleeping in huts that got some, some boost since last time I was there 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> but overall there was, everyone spoke Hebrew. Um, the main currency was the shekel. Oh, wow. The, we, we were at a place that was run uh, by uh, mostly Sudanese and Egyptians, and not the, not many Bedouins, which is very unusual for Sinai. But everyone spoke Hebrew, everyone. <laughs> um, and this is speaking about almost a decade where you didn't have so many Israeli tourists then. So it's really remarkable to see how dependent, um, at least this part of Sinai is on Israeli tourists. Interesting uh, now that you know there was always travel. There were travel warnings for many, many, many years, and during COVID, the border was closed. And it, you know, it it, it would be interesting to see how much of this uh, tourism boost um, um, this part gets in Egypt in general, um, as a result of really improving bilateral ties between Israel and Egypt. Fascinating. Uh, very jealous. I have yet to uh, make it down to Sinai. Looking forward to it. Uh, Michael, how about you? How was Passover? It was good. Mine wasn't nearly as interesting as Shira's, although perhaps almost as crowded since I had 15 of my wife's family members with us for uh, the first two days of Passover. So there were 18 people sleeping in my house and two people sleeping across the street. Um, I know that you are jealous of me as well, Mary. So, Well, I haven't told you what I did for Passover. So, I, <laughs> Right. So what did you do, Mary? Well, some of us uh, are 
functioning, working journalists. And as we're going to get into in this podcast, uh, there was a lot of activity uh, last week, especially in and around Jerusalem, uh, Ramadan and Passover uh, coming at the same time this year. And so I, uh, maybe half an hour before Passover setter that Friday afternoon evening, I was uh, filing an article uh, sitting outside uh, with a glass of wine, but with a laptop and working. So uh, all's well that ends well. Uh, I got it in, but and then and then ate. Uh, but it was, I guess, the upside really is that uh, my family maybe for the first time actually believed that I had a real job because uh, they were all coming over, uh, very curious as to what I was typing uh, right before the holiday started. So that was that was my Passover, uh, and that extended into uh, obviously last week during the uh, the Passover week. So with that, uh, are you are you guys jealous of me now? Well, it sounds like you were by yourself with a glass of wine for at least part of it. So, <laughs> you know, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I agree. Work, right? I agree. And um, it sounds like there was no sand. The <laughs> sun was not in your face. You had had access to uh, your own uh, shower bathroom and no mosquitoes so yeah all, all in all pretty pretty good and a lot of action you know inside on the beach you read books and stuff but it does get a little bit boring so moving moving right along before we get a nasty letter from the egyptian tourism board uh we i'm a big should... fan of egypt let's, let's put this for the record yeah yes you are um so let's start here and try to make some order for people uh that were on holiday and actually on holiday over the past few weeks about what's been going on and what hasn't been going on here in Israel really over the past month. Um, it's really easy, I think, for all these issues and uh, topics and stories to blend and merge together. Uh, and it's also important to note that we're recording this on April 26th, on Tuesday. So uh, by the time this episode goes up, everything may have changed, hopefully not. Um, but we kicked off really this past month, as I'm sure everyone remembers, as we touched on in previous episodes here on Israel Policy Pod, with the wave of terror attacks in Israeli cities starting in late March, uh, four attacks in about three weeks, uh, 14 people uh, tragically killed. Um, but the last attack happened in central Tel Aviv on April 7th. So that's in terms of the terror attacks. Uh, as we mentioned at the top, there were clashes between Israel police and Palestinians at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, otherwise known as the Temple Mount to Jews. Uh, and that happened most mornings, starting from Passover Eve till the end of last week. Um, but since the weekend, things seem to have calmed down uh, in and around Jerusalem. So that's in terms of Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa and the Temple Mount. Uh, and then to top things off, last week, Two, we saw a sporadic rocket fire begin again from Gaza into southern Israel, along with Israeli retaliatory airstrikes and other measures. Uh, this is really for the first time in, in several months, seeing exchange of fire uh, in, in from Gaza. But again, uh, the upside, uh, the last few days have been uh, quiet, uh, so no renewed rocket fire. So I wanted to start with the easy thing first, uh, Michael and Shira. Uh, Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa, and the Temple Mount. Um, obviously, like most things within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there are conflicting narratives, conflicting opinions about what actually happened 
on this holiest of holy sites. Uh, the Israeli side says the police went in and they were responding to Palestinian rioters and that Israel is simply trying to uphold law and order uh, on the Temple Mount, whereas the Palestinian side very adamantly says that uh, they're defending Al-Aqsa against uh, a right-wing Israeli bid to change uh, the long-standing status quo at the site, whereas only Muslims are allowed to worship on the Temple Mount, uh, i.e. not Jews. Um, and that anyway, this was a really kind of heavy-handed use of force by the Israel border police. Um, and I'm sure many people saw the, the video and images uh, coming from there over the past week. So with that, Michael, what do you think? What actually happened on the Temple Mount at Al-Aqsa uh, starting Passover Eve? I think there are elements of truth and accuracy to both sides, depending on perception. I think that in this instance, you know, looking at things from afar, the Israeli police definitely seemed more restrained than we have seen in past incidents, certainly more restrained than we saw last May when issues around both the Temple Mount and Damascus Gate led to some of the violence and fighting. And I also think it's true that the Israeli police did not go up there and enter the compound until they were responding to stones and Molotov cocktails and fireworks and other projectiles being thrown not only at them, but thrown down onto the Western Wall Plaza from a group of Palestinians who had holed up in the mosque. So when the Israelis say that they were responding, I think that is accurate. I also think it's accurate to say that the Palestinians themselves do indeed perceive a threat to Al-Aqsa and to the status quo. The question is whether that threat is real or not, not whether they perceive the threat to be real, because they certainly perceive the threat to be real. And there, it's definitely the case that the Israeli authorities seem to be turning more of a blind eye to Jews who are praying on the Temple Mount, something that they really did not tolerate until a couple of years ago. And so the question is, to what degree should this really be seen as a threat? Palestinians are talking about an Israeli plot to divide Al-Aqsa and to institute rules for the Temple Mount, similar to what we see in Hebron, where Marat HaMachpelah, or the Ibrahimi Mosque, uh, is divided between Jews and Muslims. I don't think that there's any truth to that rumor that Israel is trying to institute a similar situation on the Temple Mount. But if you view any Jewish prayer at all, no matter how surreptitious, as a threat, then you know you're going to see this as 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 really threatening, and um, it is something that Palestinians are extremely sensitive to. So uh, I think that both sides have their narrative, and neither narrative is completely inaccurate. But there's definitely a perception gap between the two sides. Right, the battle of narratives, as always in in Israel Palestine, Shira. What do you think? Yeah, about you know, I will add this because I think it is important to mention that you can say, okay, what's the big deal? A Jewish person praying on Temple Mount. It's not 
religion. It's not just religious here. The, the, the idea of Temple Mount is really a, a, an issue of sovereignty for the Palestinians. That's why you see also Christian Palestinians visiting there. And so it is so sensitive, the perception of the change in status quo. And I agree with, you, with Michael that Israel is definitely careful about not making those big changes to the status quo, but there is an erosion of the status quo more on, on the margins, but it's so sensitive because this is, um, uh, there was an interesting column by a Palestinian author in Aretz, um, I'm blanking on the name, but explaining why this is, this is such a big deal because this is a place where the Palestinians feel they still have um, the upper hand. It's, it's, it's an area where they feel they're still in control and giving in even a little bit on this takes away the sort of their last, uh, the last place, the last strand of sovereignty that they have. So I think this this is also an interesting perspective uh, to look at it. But I think, you know, in, in that regard here, there's no question that if you think of all, right, we had warnings that because of the the, the, the confluence of, you know, so Ramadan and, and, and Passover and Easter and Jerusalem and the events of last May with, with the war uh, with Hamas, um, there was ample warning, and Israel really did plan to calm things down and to mitigate the risks for escalation. Um, remember Sheikh Jarrah? We thought this could be an issue, and sort of like they kicked the can down the road. There were massive, massive, massive uh, civilian relief toward Gaza, right? With with workers going to work uh, in Israel from Gaza, and 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 with the West Bank uh, strengthening Palestinian authority. Uh, uh, bringing in regional countries and also uh, keeping the the quiet in Temple Mount, right? And and the police, uh, really, as Michael said, I mean, they weren't as aggressive as as we've seen them before. Uh, but but the, but the practice, what we're seeing is is escalation, uh, and we've seen uh, you know sort of very severe incitement by Hamas and 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 with Jordan that. Uh, to this dismay of many Israelis responded in ways that were uh, deemed counterproductive on this and not not acknowledging publicly at least that the the, 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 the situation is is complex right and that uh, those that lit up the fire this time was not Israeli police there's a lot of right the fake news of erosion the changing of the status quo and the incitement um, and, and Israel, I think Amos Arel analyzed it well in art. Israel is very late uh, in in responding to this. Like it's 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 a security crisis, but it's also a PR crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Israel is not very good at this. And and arguably also Israel has the lower hand on this. Um, so it's true. Both both sides have a grain of salt. It, a lot of it is a matter of perception. But at the end of the day. Uh, who's right it doesn't help us here. It's who's who's smart about it, and this is uh, this is where I find the challenge. Yeah, and just to, just to emphasize emphasize the point that you were made because I, I think a lot of times folks on the Israeli side and certainly on the American Jewish side don't understand this. It, it isn't just about religion, right? It it really is an issue of political sovereignty and national sovereignty, and. The reason the Temple Mount is such a unifying issue on the Palestinian side isn't because 100% of Palestinians are religious or even care about the religious significance of the site. As Shira noted, it is seen as the one place where they can assert control more than the Israelis. 
And so it is deeply political. And I think that um, to only focus on the religious aspect is a mistake. Right. There's all this preparation and Israeli thinking and on all fronts, on the economic fronts and political fronts and strengthening the PA and guns and, and Jordan, everything. And at the end of the day, things explode because there's a limit to, you know, managing the conflict, even if it's mm. the lux management of a conflict and shrinking the conflict. At the end of the day, you need to seek a solution to this conflict. And this is not what this government is doing or the Israeli strategy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general. I think that's undoubtedly true. Uh, I took a little bit of a different conclusion from uh, the lack of effectiveness of all these preventive measures or preemptive measures uh, over the past month. Uh, I'm always amazed, and I shouldn't be, that a handful of people, so whether it's uh, you know five terrorists launching attacks inside Israeli cities or about 200 Shabab on the Temple Mound or a handful of Israeli riot police with batons on the Temple Mound, uh, the, the damage they can cause and the, the fallout that they can cause, that all the best laid plans are undone by, um, well, by spoilers, by definition. Right, true also, but, you know, spoilers, I think, are able to dictate things, um, but you still need a strategy, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's not even just about there not being a long-term strategy. When there's no long-term outlook for anything when almost the entirety of the Israeli political establishment and security establishment have come to the conclusion that there is no possible way to resolve the conflict. There is no timeline for doing so. Um, everything will just be managed until the end of time. That just heightens the impact that spoilers play. Um, because at least if you have some sort of plan in place. Of course, there are always going to be spoilers. We saw this certainly during the Oslo years in, in the mid-90s and, and late 90s, um, the way that in particular Hamas terrorism uh, was able to spoil many plans the government had. But at least if there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel and a place that people are working toward, then you can you know maybe have a chance of dealing with spoilers. In this, in this environment, as, as, as you say, Neri, you can make all the plans you want to try and keep things quiet, um, but a few people will always, always be able to follow that up. I agree with all of that. Uh, we're going to touch on the diplomatic uh, efforts and fallout in just a second. Um, from my perspective here on the ground, I was in Jerusalem uh, last week and obviously covering, covering uh, the escalation, the tensions, the clashes, whatever you want to call it, uh, at Al-Aqsa, at the Temple Mount. Um, I agree with both of you. There's there's truth on on both sides. It's not an either or proposition uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, I'll just say a few things. Uh, the first two weeks of Ramadan, including at Al-Aqsa and the Old City, uh, were very quiet. They were surprisingly quiet, given what we saw last year. Uh, and I think that's a credit to the Israeli authorities and the Israel police who changed their approach 180 degrees from what we saw last year. So the Damascus Gate area, the the entryway to the Muslim quarter uh, of the old city leading up to the Western Wall and, and Al-Aqsa, um, last year they barred it off with metal barricades and wouldn't let uh, Palestinians congregate and eat and worship during, during Ramadan nights. Uh, that's all open now. 
and you see it very clearly. Uh, I was shocked last week uh, when I was walking around the old city after after nightfall. Minimal police presence, not just in not just relative to to last year, but relative to even years prior. Uh, and I think that's a, that was a concerted effort. You know, to less police presence, less friction, as they call it here. Uh, between the Israeli security forces and and the local Palestinians, so that's just in terms of, of context. But what we did see on that first, on that second Friday of Ramadan, Passover Eve, uh, was was an escalation, and uh, I guess the Palestinians were uh, were trying to defend Al Aqsa, quote unquote, from these rumors that were spreading about uh, Israeli extremists wanting to go up to the Temple Mount and slaughter slaughter a goat or a calf or a sheep, uh, which is it? I have no idea. But there were these rumors circulating. Uh, again, there the truth lies on both sides, right? That there were Israeli extremists, Jewish ultranationalists, uh, intending to try to go up to the Temple Mount to slaughter uh, a calf or a goat or a sheep. <laughs> um, uh, but then, you know, the Israeli police actually stopped them from, from happening, right? So again, upholding status quo. On the flip side, what we saw in subsequent days was uh, over 2,000 Jews throughout the course of the week uh, actually going up as visitors to the Temple Mount and walking around, and as they have done really for the past decade plus, um, praying. Now, they're walking around, they're mumbling, and they're swaying, um, but but they're praying. And as as anyone who, who has gone up to the Temple Mount, to Al-Aqsa, as a visitor knows, you go through a police checkpoint from the Western Wall up on this, uh, the Mugrubi Gate, the, this kind of uh, rickety wooden uh, path up to the Temple Mount. And they make it very clear as you're going through security, no praying, no praying, right? That's the official policy. And yet, you know, definitely last week and in weeks prior and years prior, you have Jewish worshipers, really, we should say what it is, these are religious nationalists. Right there's a there's a religious edict by the ultra orthodox rabbinate for forbidding Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. Right, so this is a very specific subset of of uh, religious nationalism, uh, religious Zionism, the settler movement, and their rabbis, uh, and they keep doing it, and there are no, and there are no repercussions. Right, so in terms of the Palestinian concerns of the erosion of the tem- of the status quo, I think I think there is truth there as well. Um, so that's my my opinion. Uh, I don't think it's going to make anybody happy from either side. This kind of uh, uh, both sides ism, but I think in this in this instance, it's it's accurate. Um, anything you guys want to add? No, I uh, I think uh, I think you captured I think you captured pretty well. And like like you say, there are both both sides are to some degree here at fault, and we can debate. You know where where the relative balance is, where that tipping point is, which side is more at fault. Um, but I don't think anybody has completely clean hands here. Right. Um, in terms of not completely clean hands, we should also mention the fallout. So it wasn't just uh, tensions and escalations on the Alexa Moss compound itself, uh, but it reverberated outwards. Uh, not only in Israel and the Palestinian territories, but really all around the Arab and Muslim world, where we saw, as Shira mentioned, even close Israeli friends and, and allies like the UAE, Bahrain, Jordan, um, the Palestinian Authority, and, and Turkey, 
uh, coming out and very clearly condemning Israel's actions and Israel's perceived violations uh, at Al-Aqsa. Uh, so it's interesting to my mind that the Palestinian issue, or at least Al-Aqsa itself, still has significance, despite uh, maybe some people wanting to bury it or to undermine it or to devalue it. Uh, were we surprised by these very public uh, condemnations of Israel uh, to what happened in Jerusalem? Shira, what do you think? You know, I was not surprised. I think all along we said, and also we said it when when just the Abraham Accords were signed, that Al-Aqsa is the real uh, litmus test, right? It's not going to break ties, but we know the Muslim world and the Arab world, but the the Muslim world, talking about Turkey, uh, cannot turn a blind eye to this. They can't just also with the lip service, they can't say something like, oh, we urge both sides to remain calm and to de-escalate. Uh, just because of the nature of the side, as we, we we said before. So, frankly, I was not surprised. I will tell you that I'm hearing from Israeli officials um, and former officials, but also current officials, a big surprise at the response of, uh, you know, as you said, the UAE, um, Morocco, um, and Jordan, uh, because the statements that came from Jordan were extremely harsh. It's not free press in Jordan, so even academics would have, would have have to been you know sort of approved by 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 the royal court. But having someone like the prime minister or the foreign minister, who are the you know what they say, the king approves, uh, mm-hmm. used this language was something that Israelis were extremely surprised at. There was even there were even um, there was a call in. One of Israel's papers by Oded Aran, uh, someone who was Israel's ambassador to Jordan, calling to sanction uh, Jordan publicly um, to evaluate their relationship with Jordan over these statements. I think uh, I think this is probably a little bit more extreme, given the the the, the how important Jordan is to Israel's uh, uh, national security and what's a strategic asset it is for Israel's, you know, national security at large, right? So I don't think that overstatements uh, by politicians, be as senior as they are, uh, you should uh, really evaluate your your relationship. But 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 that's this anecdote just tells you that even if we weren't as surprised, there were certainly people in Israel that are surprised. And I'm, I'm curious, Neri, people that you talk to, you know, and and. Uh, for for some of your reporting, the Israelis that you speak to, I don't know how surprised they were, but if I, if, if if you heard from them the same things that I'm hearing, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially Jordan, they were uh, dismayed, uh, almost shocked, I think, by the level of rhetoric coming out of Amman. That you know, it wasn't just kind of siding with the Palestinian narrative in this instance, but they were really, uh, like you said, aggressive in denouncing Israel. Uh, and framing it as solely an Israeli violation of uh, of the status quo and just you know security and stability on uh, at Al-Aqsa. So yeah, and also uh, a bit of a surprise, I think, uh, in terms of the UAE and Bahraini response. Uh, I think it's really the first time since the Abraham Accords were signed that uh, both states kind of came out and, and publicly. Uh, slapped Israel on the wrist for actions in the Palestinian arena. So, you know, there's a first time for everything, but like you said, uh, it's not even the Palestinian issue per se, uh, which, as we know, uh, the Emiratis at least, uh, let's say, don't really care that much about, but it's Al-Aqsa, 
and Alaksa reverberates. Um, Michael, what do you think about the diplomatic fallout? And also, you know, Shira mentioned this earlier, but we have been pointing to April as this kind of very potentially combustible month with Ramadan and Passover and Easter all coalescing at the same time. Uh, so despite the mitigation efforts by Israel and other parties ahead of time, um, were you surprised that we, we've reached this point? Like Shira, I wasn't surprised by the diplomatic condemnations. I, I think that you know we all we we've all understood for years just how volatile Al Aqsa is as a potential flashpoint. Um, actually, Neri, I, I remember having a conversation with you in like 2015 or 2016 uh, when there was a, when there was an uptick in terrorism in Israel, sort of around the you know the so-called knife intifada. Um, I remember having a conversation with you about whether it was going to extend throughout the West Bank and, and become a bigger thing. And I was worried that it was. And, you know, your response to me was, unless you see passive getting involved or unless it involves the Temple Mount, it's not going to happen. And you know, we were 100% correct back then. And I think that we all, you know, we all know that we all understand that the role the Temple Mount plays in this. Um, so I wasn't surprised at the condemnations. You know, I was unpleasantly surprised, as Shira also noted, by the specific Jordanian response, because we're generally used to seeing the Jordanians as the responsible party here and generally working to calm tempers and uh, and quiet things down. And certainly having the Jordanian prime minister um, hail the people throwing rocks at the Zionist interlopers, as he said, um, not the kind of thing that we're, that we're used to either from, you know, King Abdullah or Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi. Um, so, you know, that was an unpleasant surprise. I'll say the one thing uh, that was a pleasant surprise was the Turkish response. You know, people people who are regular listeners of this podcast know that I'm deeply skeptical of the durability of the um, thaw in Israel-Turkey ties. And this is the type of thing where you're in the past, President Erdogan would have raged for days uh, and used completely over-the-top rhetoric about what the Israelis were doing. And he was actually relatively restrained. Um, not only was he relatively relatively restrained, he went out of his way to emphasize that this should not destroy Israeli-Turkish relations. So, you know, that was that that was surprising to me in terms of its scope and the specifics. But the general diplomatic response was not a surprise to me. In terms of, you know, what we've seen so far in general, I think everybody put in a lot of time to try and make sure that Ramadan this year wasn't going to look like Ramadan last year. And mm -hmm. that includes the Israelis, the Jordanians, the Palestinians, and the United States. And so, sure, there has been violence. And, you know, we, we have seen these unsettling episodes but I think given what could have been, and granted, we're still not, we're certainly not out of the woods by any means. Um, but given what could have been starting with Ramadan, I think that the situation is perhaps better than we anticipated. And again, bearing in mind that, you know, there's still a week to go. And then when Ramadan ends, you still have to deal with Yom Ma'ut and Nakba Day and Yom Yerushalayim. So potential out there for, for things to really uh, escalate. Um, 
But so far, it really has not, not to, not to discount any of the violence that has happened, but uh, it hasn't been quite as bad as it could have been. Wait, but uh, we have to go talk about this. I'm so happy, Michael, you brought up Turkey in that regard, because I saw discrimination from Turkey, the general one. But on this podcast, I believe we discussed Turkey beforehand. And you were the, the, the and, and as you're saying now, you are the pessimist. You say you said that they would blow up over the next thing in Jerusalem. And I told you that I think we're in for a surprise. So I think you have, do you need to eat a hat? Or is there a hat next to you that you can eat? Or uh, <laughs> I'm putting on a dunce cap right now. You, you can't see it. But. We're going to, we're going to edit this, uh, this part and we're going to keep it for future when there's a major blow up in Israel-Turkey relations and we can have and can tell me told you so. No, of course, there's the matter of a time they mentioned, but I was like, it's important enough for Turkey at the moment uh, to repair ties that I don't think they're going to go to revert to their um, regular, you know, old ways, uh, let's say. As I said, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I will point out, this is like, to use a baseball analogy that, that you probably won't, won't understand, this is like the top of the first inning in terms of reconciliation. <laughs> so, We'll we'll see we'll see I've got I've got plenty of time left to still be right. <laughs> Is that akin to like first act in theater? Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand baseball. It's it's, it's akin to like five minutes after the opening curtain. Ah. Okay. Okay. It's true. But we are talking about Jerusalem, right? Remember, and this is where Israel is most sensitive to to um, Turkey's actions. Um, I mean, there's Gaza and there's Hamas uh, terror lakes, which, by the way, there is there is a story now with funding from Turkey. Um, arriving in the hands of of Hamas uh, leader that actually uh, uh, operated uh, in East Jerusalem, but I think these are old, you know, connections, not not like a new allegation. Uh, but but you know, incitement around Al-Aqsa is really the most sensitive point between in ties between uh, Israel and Turkey. And and I, thank you for pointing out that we have a pleasant surprise there. Before before this becomes the Turkey policy pod. Uh, I just want to ask uh, about the U.S. role in all this. So we did see a high-level State Department delegation arrive in the region uh, a few days ago. I think they just returned to Washington. Uh, we saw Secretary Blinken uh, make phone calls and get involved. So do we think the U.S. role here uh, helped to kind of manage the crisis late last week and to at least lower tensions? What do we think, Michael? Let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think the U.S. role definitely lower tensions. We saw Yael Lampert and Hadi Amr travel to the region and, and basically meet with everybody. I don't think it's a coincidence that after they met with the Jordanians, the Jordanian rhetoric got dialed down in a real way. Um, yep. And, you know, I also don't think it's a coincidence that after they met with Abu Mazen and PA officials, they also seemed to take a bit of a step back. So 100%, I think the U.S. role was helpful here. The question is going to be, though, what happens going forward? Because it's one thing for the U.S. to step in while the tensions are high and while violence is going on and do what it can to put things back to the way they were. You know, what I don't want to see is then the U.S. sort of absent, its, absent itself until there's another crisis. Um, you know, in some ways, not entirely, but in some ways, that's what we saw last May when the U.S. worked to try to calm things down and then, you know, kind of peaced out. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be a more robust and involved and engaged U.S. role going forward rather than just showing up when there's a crisis. I agree with that. Um, I was also happy to see uh, the U.S. get involved, uh, let's say, before things really, really exploded. Uh, and and I think that was all for the good. And like I said, the last few days have uh, tensions have lowered, as they say here. And so it's been uh, relatively quiet. Um, but we should also mention, uh, in terms of relative quiet or not, uh, that we saw renewed rocket fire from Gaza uh, last week. Uh, sporadic ro rocket fire, maybe one or two a night, uh, and a few nights last week. Um, no Palestinian faction actually claimed responsibility, but the thinking here in Israel is that it was likely not Hamas, uh, probably Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, or another rogue group trying to at least uh, symbol, symbol or, or signal its uh, solidarity with what was going on in Jerusalem uh, and other parts. Uh, so, Shira, let's start with you. Do we agree with this assessment that this was, I think, more symbolic? than anything else, and that Hamas really, really doesn't want to see uh, another repeat of last May, just yet at least. Yes, yes, yes. I think you're right. It's more symbolic. Um, I think Hamas, and primarily, you know, Yehessinoir, um, he operates according to a calculated risk. Um, he doesn't want escalation in Gaza, because still you have to build up um, you know, and recover from 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 the war um, in last May, um, and uh, but but at the same time, um, trying to light up uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem. I think, though, that we always tend to think in Israel that um, Hamas doesn't have uh, an interest in escalation. Um, which certainly was the situation before last May, right? Hours before there mm -hmm. were rockets on Jerusalem, we heard that neither side has uh, interest in escalation. So we always have to be careful with this assess assessment. But I think now, yeah, it is. Um, it is a more. It's it's more based just because there's also you know the the sequence of 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 uh, you know we know these wars in Gaza and how they go. There's need for recovery time. There's also international focus on Gaza. Uh, the donor conference, AGLC, the donor conference is coming up in May. Um, there are uh, Palestinian workers exiting uh, Gaza to work in Israel, uh, bringing money in, which is important. Hamas is also sensitive to uh, Egypt here, and Egypt has taken a uh, uh, very uh, a leading role in you know reconstruction of Gaza and maintaining the ceasefire there and actually starting a war uh, with Israel in Gaza is not in the interest of Hamas at the moment, um, but it is in its interest to uh, uh, fight with Israel in Jerusalem and in the West Bank, and I think this is where it is very 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 important to note that. Similarly to last May, despite Hamas' incitement, despite these harsh responses, despite the rhetoric right, of international leaders and also Palestinian leaders, the West Bank is quiet. The Palestinian public is not joining, the West Bank is not joining uh, not neither protests nor violence. And mm -hmm. part of it is because the public, the, the, their public doesn't have appetite for this. 
but also because that despite the rhetoric and whatever people want to say about um, the Palestinian Authority here and Palestinian Prime Minister, security coordination between Israel and the Palestinian security forces is maintained. And it keeps mm-hmm. it quiet. And I think this is where it's really important for us when we talk about pleasant surprises. This is the one thing we should all uh, uh, work toward, right? Because other, otherwise things would, would, would really uh, go south. And we're not seeing that. Right. Rhetoric on the one hand and actual uh, behind the scenes actions on the other, uh, as is so often the case uh, with the Palestinian Authority. Michael, what do you think about the renewed rocket fire from Gaza and this notion at least from Hamas's point of view, that it wants to unify the various uh, areas and regions of, of Israel-Palestine, whether it's uh, Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, and inside Israel itself, and also Lebanon. We saw one rocket fired, uh, I think, one or two days ago from Lebanon, likely by a, a Hamas-affiliated group. Um, and Israel's intention or objective to uh, to stop the unification of these various Palestinian sectors and regions. I, I think the rocket from Lebanon is, is important because I agree, Hamas does not seem to want to have another round of fighting in Gaza. When Benny Gantz announced that he was closing the Erez crossing and not letting out uh, the Palestinians in Gaza who have entry permits to Israel, um, we stopped that for two days and, and Hamas seemed to be uh, extremely concerned about that stoppage and wanted it started again. I think that, as, as you as you note, um, Hamas generally needs time to retool after fighting in Gaza, and one year isn't enough. So I do think they want to quiet in Gaza, but you know the rocket from Lebanon, which seems to have been uh, either Hamas or a Hamas-affiliated group, um, on the Temple Mount where there were Hamas flags and clearly um, a Hamas presence trying to stir things up, um, you know, they've been trying in the West Bank for a long time, um, thankfully, unsuccessfully. But there seems to be little question that the clear Hamas strategy right now is to try and inflame all of these other areas and try to hit Israel with protests in Jerusalem and uh, attacks in the West Bank. And now we see, you know, again, it's only one rocket so far, but rocket fire from Lebanon to try and take the fight to Israeli turf rather than having it be fought in Gaza. And um, I don't think we should be surprised to, to see this type of thing escalate on all of these other non-Gaza fronts because that's pretty clearly what Hamas is aiming to do. Right. It uh, There are some voices uh, in Israel, maybe not in terms of the Israeli government or security establishment, but uh, let's say outside voices uh, that deal very intimately with the Palestinian issue that are saying that this this situation can't can't go on, that Hamas can't sit in Gaza and feel that it's uh, cocooned and protected from all-out war, and on the other hand, try to escalate things, whether in Jerusalem, the West Bank, inside Israel with the Israeli Arab citizens, uh, or even from Lebanon. And that at a certain point, you may need to tackle uh, the home base of Hamas. Uh, I don't think the Israeli government or or military is, is there yet, but it, it's always interesting to my mind that these uh, uh, these very expert voices on, on the Palestinian issue from the Israeli uh, side uh, keep saying that uh, a harder line is needed 
um, just something to keep in mind. Yeah, and and you know, successive Israeli governments, both this one and the Netanyahu government, are so concerned with rocket fire from Gaza and maintaining quiet in the border towns around Gaza, and obviously keeping rockets out of Tel Aviv. I think oftentimes they they discount all these other areas, and you know Hamas has capability to cause trouble in lots of other places. And if you just focus on the rockets from Gaza, I think uh, you know you're you're missing you're missing the point. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring in this uh, because there's right Israel has this divide policy, right? You the divide mm-hmm. policy, divide between the West Bank and Gaza, and you have a different policy. It seems that Hamas very wisely is also has a divide policy. They divide between the territory that they control, Gaza, which it's mostly in their interest to protect and ensure it doesn't get into fighting. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the other territory where they have, as Michael said, lots of tools and influence, cloud, uh, there it's all all game. Right. And, and, in, and keeping in mind, it's not, it's not just about trying to hit Israel from other places or in other places, let's you know remember that Hamas and, and the PA uh, aren't exactly on great terms. And so stirring up trouble in the West Bank isn't only about causing problems for Israel, it's also about ca- causing problems for the PA. And so it would make sense that you know they, they focus there, particularly if they want to avoid more Israeli operations in Gaza itself. Agreed. Uh, before we wrap up, we have to mention that there wasn't just a security crisis over the past month here in Israel and uh, Palestine and Jerusalem, uh, but also a political crisis in Israel, uh, as I'm sure most of our listeners have heard. Uh, earlier this month, a key lawmaker from Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's own party, own Yamina party, uh, Edith Silman, who was actually the, the coalition whip, uh, defected to the opposition uh, she said she could no longer continue in a government that, according to her, was uh, undermining Jewish values. Uh, that was seen, deemed as really just a pretext uh, for for cutting and running to to the opposition. Uh, but it did have the effect that it uh, erased the Bennett and Lapid government's slim one seat majority in the Knesset. Um, and then to top it all off. Given the clashes and tensions at Al-Aqsa, the Arab-Israeli Islamist party, Ram, uh, suspended its participation uh, in parliamentary activity and governmental activity. Uh, this move was seen as temporary, uh, so they'll likely be back. Uh, I think the one saving grace is that all of this happened when the Knesset was in holiday recess. So the Knesset and Israeli politicians had a holiday. They're still on holiday till after Independence Day. Uh, and the Knesset is due back, I think, the second week in May. So final question, given the lack of a parliamentary majority now, and given the real, real stress on the prime minister's own party, uh, and given the growing tensions between, let's say, the Arab and left-wing parts of this government and the more hardline and right-wing parts of this government, Shira, let's start with you. How long will the bennett Lapid government last, do you think, after it comes back from recess? Uh, I'm so, I'm bad with sports and bad with gambling. I think everyone sort of <laughs> assesses that, it, you know, it's a matter of a few months. Um, and it's going to be very difficult for this coalition to survive. Um, 
and to pass legislation, uh, but it can survive. And as our friend Novik keeps reminding us, that there were uh, narrow coalitions that have survived uh, for longer periods, although never as diverse as this one. Right. Um, I don't know if this is, you know, it's definitely not a survey or a poll. I don't have data on this. I will tell you that uh, it doesn't feel to me like the Israeli public now uh, facing insane cost of living and uh, a variety of other hardships and challenges uh, has the mindset now to go to elections. And uh, I think the politicians are a little bit worried about being held accountable by the public for taking, for dragging, you know, uh, the, the country again to elections. Um, we just recovered. It finally feels like some things are moving. There's a budget. Uh, so I'll be optimistic in the sense of uh, if optimism is, I mean, stability in the sense, I'll be optimistic to say that I don't think it's going to, the government is going to collapse as um, as early as some people forecast. Right. Uh, Israeli politicians taking into account public interest and in not dragging the country to election after election after election uh, has been been proven to be not the case. That they... <laughs> That they really just do whatever they deem in their narrow, narrow personal political interest. Uh, Michael, what do you think? How long will this government survive? I, I think it's going to make it at least until the fall. And I think that there's a chance that it makes it until next March when they have to pass a new budget. You know, I, I think there are too many politicians out there in the opposition um, who don't want to go to elections yet. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you, Neri. I'm, I'm more cynical. I don't think it has anything to do with... Um, Minding, uh, minding the will of Israeli voters. I think that they have their own political interests at heart. Um, I also have to say that Edith Silman so far doesn't exactly seem to be providing an incentive for more people to jump ship. You know, she left and um, there were some uh, beautiful, beautiful laudatory things said about her by Bibi Netanyahu and other folks within Likud. And what we've seen since is you know, she's marching to Chomesh next to Batsalos Smotrich and Itamar Ben Gvir. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that's exactly the the post coalition life that she envisioned. So I do think that things are probably going to hold together through the Knesset summer session and probably at least until we get to the Chagim in the fall. And at that point, people will reassess. But I, I also don't see, I don't see elections happening, you know, as soon as the Knesset comes back on May 8th um, and the Knesset dissolving. I just, I don't think that's in the cards. So I want to be as optimistic as both of you about the longevity and staying power of this, uh, of this government. I think really the last thing Israel needs is yet another election and maybe yet another and another and another. Uh, but I'm a bit more skeptical or cynical about the government staying power. I think it's not just that they lack a parliamentary majority. You're absolutely right. Uh, it doesn't mean that the government uh, will be toppled the day after the Knesset returns next month. Uh, you, there are various uh, hurdles that need to be passed and uh, dissolving Knesset or uh, what they call a constructive no-confidence vote. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. The problem, I think, is the internal politics in, inside the coalition where we saw this from the remaining members of Naftali Bennett's Amina party, that Edith Silman defected, and then the two or three other remaining MKs started issuing their ultimatums of the government. 
that they wanted, you know, a more rightward shift. And if not, if those ultimatums aren't met, then the threat was that they're also going to defect, which would really change the math. Uh, not only the math, really, <laughs> I don't know how you could be a prime minister with a party of two people. Hmm. Uh, I think it was a stretch for a prime minister to be prime minister with a party of six people. So if these remaining Yamina MKs start pulling the government rightward, I think there will be a, there has to be a response from the left wing side of the government, you know, because if everybody's at least potentially weighing the threat of an election later this year or early next year, they have to go back to their public and say, okay, we stood on our principles and we didn't cave in. Uh, and so therein lies the rub. Uh, and we already saw it with Ram that Ram uh, due to Al-Aqsa suspended their participation. You know, if Al-Aqsa blows up again or if there's other kind of security or Palestinian adjacent issues come up, uh, they also have their own constituency. And so that's that's my fear, that the that the internal cohesion of, of this government, which was a real thing for, for nine months, uh, is now unfortunately being really, really tested uh, over the past month. And, uh, you know, we'll see how how Bennett and Lapid and the other leaders of this government uh, navigate their way through. I hear that argument, but I, I think I disagree at least in the in the short and near medium term. So I agree 100% that the government is going to be pulled to the right because they don't want Nir Orbach or Ayala Chaked to defect. But I, I honestly don't think there's anything that this government can do Short of short of something insane, you know, like like going back to putting annexation on the table, that will cause labor and merits to leave. Ram is a different, I think, is a different kettle of fish. But if you're in labor or merits and you control ministries, you have no shot at ever sniffing those ministries again in the next, I don't know, three to three to five years. At least, I mean, this was this was the only scenario in which they were going to be included in a government. As soon as Bibi's gone and we're back to a pretty easy seventy or seventy-five seat right-wing Haredi coalition, these guys are going to be in the desert again for God knows how long. And so, I'm skeptical that there's really anything that this government will plausibly do that will lead the parties on the left to leave and bring down the government, especially considering that if uh, it's two people from their side who leave, Lapid doesn't become prime minister in the interim. You know, then Bennett remains prime minister uh, in the interim period before elections. So I don't know. I'm more, I'm more skeptical than you are on that point, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that labor and merits will, will topple the government. Uh, again, for all the reasons you just said, I think, you know, when it comes down to it and these Yamina right-wing MKs are pulling in one direction that the left-wing and centrist members of the government will will stand their ground and that will actually precipitate a a, a blow-up, right? And and so the, the Amina MKs will be given a pretext or they'll be like, okay, we, we tried, but this is no longer feasible and, and they'll bring down the government. So, but again, uh, hopefully, they, hopefully they, they're able to navigate it through because the last thing I want... Uh, is to uh, to cover yet another Israeli election. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's in your future pretty soon, no matter what. So, seeing a, a rerun of of my Passover Eve. Yes. 
on that optimistic note, uh, Michael, Shira, thank you as always uh, for coming on the Israel Policy Pod. Thanks, Neri. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Neri. Thank you, Michael. Okay, that was Michael Coplow and Shira Efron. Many thanks to them again, as always, for their expert analysis and their generous time. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening.